You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. church family. It's good to be with you. My name is Timothy Allen, and I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. For those that I don't know, I look forward to, look forward to getting to know you better. And for those uh, joining us on the live stream as well, it's good to have you here with us together. And uh, one of the things I wanted to be able to share with our church family is that we have brought on board our, um, our new office manager, Danielle Ray. And so she'll be starting in a limited capacity this upcoming week, and then starting more, more fully in October. But we praise God for her. Uh, that role, I got to say, that role is the glue of the operation. Can I tell you that? <laughs> for those that uh, are a part of an organization that has an office manager, I mean, <clears throat> or a similar role, love that person well. <laughs> Thank them for what they do. But uh, we're, really, we're really appreciative of Danielle and look forward to introducing her in one of these coming weeks, and I have to figure out how to refer to Danielle, my wife, and Danielle, the office manager, but I digress. We'll, I'm sure we'll figure that out. But this past week, we were in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14 in our series called Sojourners and Exiles, and we looked particularly at what it means to rejoice when suffering shame. Rejoice when suffering shame for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this passage here in 1 Peter 5, if you haven't already, please turn to this this text. Um, (laughs) I'll just admit right off the bat here that this could have easily been three messages. I'm going to try not to preach three messages, if if at all possible. Some of you are like, oh boy, oh boy, we'll see how this goes. But anyway, I appreciate your prayer. So, uh, in fact... I can think of nothing better to do than to pray, so let's do just that. Father, we come to you this morning grateful, eager, and hungry for your word. Lord, would you take the truth of your word and plant it deep within us? Lord, would you form us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ? Father, would these words capture our hearts? Father, would you show us the need for humble leaders. God, would you cause us to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another? Lord, would you use your life-giving word to help us to stand firm, to to be alert for whatever may come our way? So, Lord, would you lead us and guide us? Holy Spirit, illumine your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. I want to start off with just a a show of hands on a question. I'm, I'm really curious about this, but who has been listening to the podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Okay, so quite a few. If you have been charting along with that or maybe are, are not as familiar with it, it, it is really a cautionary tale about this church called Mars Hill and its meteoric rise, but then also its seemingly crumbling overnight. And among many parts of this, I won't belabor necessarily that, the, that particular podcast, but among the many things that, I, that it highlights, I think, speaks directly to where we are in this passage. And that is 
the need for humble leaders who will shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to their care under the guidance of the chief shepherd himself, under the guidance of Christ. And so right off the bat, the first four verses speak very much to that, the need for humble leaders. Then in verses five to seven, it talks about humility that we are all to demonstrate toward one another in the body. Humility toward one another. Followed by then together, how we are to live in a a pattern of uh, alertness. How we are to stand firm together as the flock. To stand firm until the very end. So that's where we're going this morning. The need for humble leaders, humility toward one another, and then standing firm to the end. In the need for humble leaders in verses 1 to 4, Peter gives us the model, the mission, and the motivation for church leadership. And the model he gives right off, right at the beginning here is, is himself. Look at, look at what he says here. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. You know, the thought of, in the previous passage, the thought of judgment beginning with the household of God, you can almost follow Peter's train of thought as then he looks at the need for gifted and loving servants who will shepherd God's flock. Not only those that ultimately will have to answer to God for how they lead, but then also those that need to lead in times of suffering, in times of trial. In the Old Testament, elders were older and wiser men who ruled towns and were skilled at at handling cases, for instance. In the first century, they held the place of honor in the Jewish synagogues. During then the rapid expansion of the early church, elder came to be the most common designation in the New Testament for the role of a a church leader. And elders, um, basically, Peter is writing here to multiple churches within Asia Minor and uses then elders in the plural. It seems to be that he is talking about there being a group of elders among each church that he writes to, which is part of how we come to, even today, how we we come to, um, to practice what's called a plurality of elders, having multiple elders in any given church. He is going to urge the elders in these churches to fulfill their mission, but before he does so, he grounds that appeal in kind of three autobiographical sketches for Peter here. The first, he says, as a fellow elder. I love that. He identifies with them and views himself as one among equals and doesn't exhort them to do anything that he is unwilling to do himself. Then, as a witness of Christ's suffering. Here Peter recalls his front row seat for Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. It also, no doubt, brought up his own painful denial of even knowing Christ, followed by Christ's powerful reinstatement of him into ministry. And then as a partaker in the glory to be revealed, Peter places himself alongside every believer who looks forward to that day of glory when Jesus returns. So one takeaway for us to dwell on here at the beginning is that there is no need for us, particularly in the church, there's no need for us to what I might call assert rank. Assert rank. 
Asserting rank basically means pointing to your position of authority to get someone to do something. It's like saying, you will do this because I'm over you. General Colin Powell said something that has stuck with me for many years. He said, people think generals go around saying, that's an order. I never did that in my whole life. Undying loyalty comes from persuasion, not ordering people around. Dear church, there is no place, there is no need for asserting rank in the church of God. And secondly here, God rescues and restores. If you think about what happened in Peter's life, how he denied even knowing Christ, and yet Christ lovingly and powerfully reinstated him to ministry. Friends, God is not done with you yet. And especially if you have been considering leadership within the church, or maybe even serving as an elder, but feel like you have a part, there's a part of you that perhaps is, is disqualifying, or part of you that, that needs to be addressed Friends, God brings about restoration and healing. Don't write yourself off. God is not done with you yet. Then from here, Peter outlines then the mission before church leaders that flows from a place of humility. The mission is to shepherd God's flock. Look at verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not only should shepherds go before the flock and diligently lead them, but shepherds should also go after the flock and not only to protect them, but also to go after those who are strays. And there's a really interesting wordplay that takes place here. The verb shepherd and the noun flock come from the same root. So it's as if Peter is saying, we could translate, translate it, shepherd the sheep. Shepherd the sheep. It's the same verb that we get the word pastor from, the same verb that Jesus used when he restored Peter. In John 21, 16, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. The main way elders are to shepherd is by watching over or overseeing the flock. So just in these, verse two, these, these two verses right here, Peter brings together the concepts of entering, overseeing, and shepherding, the word we get pastor from. And I believe if you look at the New Testament, these words are used interchangeably to, to, to refer to the same role, elder and pastor and overseer. So that is why our conviction here at EBF, for instance, is that that is one and the same and that no elder is higher than another. Even for me as lead pastor, I am one among equals on our elder team. I'm grateful for those that God has brought alongside me to to lead and to hold one another accountable, to, to stand in the low points of the wall for one another as well. Well, Peter further clarifies what it means to watch over the flock by giving three pitfalls here, and the first is that of duty. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Verse 2. You know, I think back to how I, I first learned to play the guitar, and that was in, uh, oh man, I don't know if I should even fess up to this, but um, it was in youth group. I think I was a junior going into my senior year, and I learned the guitar because there was no one else to do it. <laughs> have, you, have you been there before? 
stepped into a role perhaps because there was no one else to do it. Now, there, there might be something admirable, admirable about that, and yet that is not what we're talking about here. That is not how people should come to be leaders, especially within the church. It should be God stirring in our hearts, calling us to serve, and the church recognizing our gifts to serve, and also recognizing how we are already functioning, perhaps, in some way in those particular leadership roles. Leading as elders should be a delight of the heart rather than a duty to fulfill. The second pitfall is greed. The rest of verse 2, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. You know, while Scripture does talk about some elders earning money for their work, unfortunately there are so many examples of church leaders who have gone astray in this area. Church leaders should be eager to serve, not eager for reward, eager for money. And the third pitfall is abuse of power. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You know, Lord Acton's line, absolute power corrupts absolutely, I think has stood the test of time in many ways. We see this in politics, we see this in business, and unfortunately we see this creep into the church as well. Peter is probably, I think, here recalling the words of Jesus in Mark 10, 42 to 45, how our, our Savior came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elders are merely stewards who have been commissioned by Jesus, who himself is the chief shepherd. Elders lead a portion of the flock. Do you catch that in the text? God's flock. Elders lead a portion of that flock that God has entrusted to their care. And the emphasis here is on humility and service toward others, living a life that, is, that can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. So one takeaway for us to consider here is that leaders should balance both the among and the over. Did you see those words in this text? Church leaders are called to shepherd the flock that is among them while also watching over them. I think there's a careful balance that needs to be struck here. Healthy church leadership seeks to balance both the among and the over so that leaders get to know the needs within the flock, know the people among they serve. But also over, leaders need to, leaders need to lead in difficult times, need to address challenges and, and some of those sufferings and difficulty that Peter alludes to earlier. Leaders should balance both among and over. Finally, Peter gives us the proper motivation for serving as leaders, and that is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus himself, who is the chief shepherd. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then in 1 Peter 2, 25, Peter writes, For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in continuing this same theme, he refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. Christ first came to earth as a lamb without blemish or defect, as Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 19. But now he watches over his church as the chief shepherd who is coming again in glory. Elders are to remember that they fall under the leadership of Jesus 
and will someday have to give an account to the chief shepherd himself for the way that they go about tending the flock of God. And Jesus will reward every church leader who has served faithfully with what is called here the unfading crown of glory. That word, that word for crown here refers to a red flower that had a certain vibrant color that didn't fade easily. And in contrast to the crown of leaves that would be awarded to the victor in this day and age, Peter points to a time when the crown of glory that the elders will receive will last for all eternity. And so, church, look forward to heavenly rather than earthly rewards. Too many church leaders, are, I believe, are building their own empires. And still others are in it perhaps for the fame and the recognition. All of these things will fade away. We should long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. We need humble leaders who will shepherd God's flock under the guidance of the chief shepherd. I believe that's the bottom line of verses 1 to 4. May we commit to the kind of leadership Jesus displayed as the servant king. May we be committed to lifting up our leaders in prayer. And when the chief shepherd appears, may we hear those words. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, here in verse 5, Peter then addresses the rest of the church and how then the church should relate to our leaders, but also to one another, to all of the flock. And so, humility toward one another in verses 5 to 7, there's really three questions that are addressed in these verses. Three questions. How should we relate to our leaders? How should we relate to one another within the flock? And also, how should we humble ourselves before God? So that first question, how should we relate to our leaders? Look at verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You know, here Peter shifts from kind of to a different group of people, but within the same general subject area. And that in addressing you who are younger, it's basically a way of summarizing everyone who is not an elder within the church. And this phrase, submit yourselves to your elders, describes the attitude we should have toward those in leadership. It means showing deference and respect, but also placing ourselves under the watchful care of those that God has called to serve as elders. So let us be humble toward those in positions of leadership, church. Just as the elders are called to humble service, so we are called to demonstrate humility toward them. And we need to recognize that God has, has gifted them, has called them, and has placed them in, in this position in order to watch over the flock, the God, God's flock that he has entrusted to their care. But this does not mean blindly following them especially if church leaders ask you to do something that violates God's word, God's very word. This is why we need church leaders, we desperately need church leaders who demonstrate the qualities that are found in verses 1 through 4. Not only should we show humility, but also pray. Pray for those in positions of leadership. Even more than submitting to them, we should pray for them. I think 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 really calls that out, as well as Hebrews 13, 7 that says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Let us be committed as a church to not only demonstrating humility, but praying, praying toward our leaders. The second question the text addresses is how should we then relate to one another within the flock? And it says, the word says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace toward the humble. All of you is like Peter's way of of zooming out at this point and addressing the entire body, really everyone in the conversation. And in, in Peter's day, encouraging people to submit would have perhaps received a hearty amen within Greco-Roman culture. But calling leaders to demonstrate humility toward lowly people, that was countercultural. The phrase, clothe yourselves here, clothe yourselves, you might picture as like wrapping yourself in like a, a nice blanket or maybe a robe or something like that, but that word, kind of the background behind that phrase is putting on a garment by by tying it or knotting it, for example. And you can just imagine perhaps Peter thinking about this image of Jesus taking off his outer outer garment and wrapping himself, wrapping a towel around his waist and kneeling to wash the disciples' fishy, funky, foul feet. You can just imagine him looking to John 13 with the for the kind of countercultural humility that we are to show toward one another. So clothe yourselves in humility. The reason we should put on humility is because God opposes the proud, but gives grace toward the humble. Here Peter borrows from Proverbs 3:34 which says he mocks proud he mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The proud are those who are arrogant think they're more important than every, everyone else and ultimately trust themselves while the humble are those who trust in God, who trust in God who delights to be trusted. And really the fundamental truth that we learn from this verse, from verse 5, is that God is gracious. He shows undeserved favor toward those who are humble. So how should we relate to one another? We are to be humble toward everyone that God brings into our lives. Everyone. There is no place for comparison games or trying to rank ourselves in relation to other people. God is calling us to demonstrate humility toward everyone. Everyone that he has uniquely made in his image. Everyone who is deserving of dignity and respect. Neither should anyone be viewed as a second-class citizen within the church. There's a dear brother of mine who uh, lives and serves in Lebanon who, as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, he's just kind of this larger-than-life gentleman, and he loves to refer to, to believers there as Prince and then their name, right? So for me, I'd be Prince Timothy, <laughs> and he says it like that too. He refers to people as Prince, those who are followers of Christ, as Prince and Princess. I love that image. Because, church, we are sons and daughters of the king. Sons and daughters of the king. So that third question for us here is, how should we then humble ourselves? According to verses 6 and 7. How should we humble ourselves? It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. You know, the therefore here signals that Peter's building on what he has just said. And this humble yourselves is the, 
is the main command. And if you look at how this is traced throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, for instance, points to being humble and contrite, contrite in spirit. Micah talks about what matters the most, and that is doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. This attitude is, is critical in Christ's teachings as well. The, I think the Gospel of Matthew is probably the, the greatest example of that. Humility is what starts off the Beatitudes. It is a recognition that we are dependent children and that we serve, we serve Him first and foremost. It is an attitude that involves not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, as Paul reminds us in Romans 12, but instead acknowledging who we really are. If you think about it, true humility remains countercultural even today. Our own culture continues to exalt lifestyles of celebrities, of athletes, of influencers, and more. Our, our natural human tendency is to want to defend our rights. But Peter earlier reminds the Christians that they should view themselves as sojourners and exiles. He reminds us of our, that we belong to the heavenly kingdom. Our first responsibility, our first responsibility really as humans, is to realize our creatureliness. Is that a word? I don't know. Ashley can confirm for me <laughs> whether or not that's a word. Uh, Scrabble would maybe say otherwise, but to realize our creatureliness. That is that God made us, that he loves us, that he made us uniquely in his image. And then our second responsibility, our second responsibility is to live in worshipful dependence upon the creator who is sovereign over all things. This passage in 1 Peter speaks of God's sovereignty with this phrase, under God's mighty hand. It's a phrase that was used in the Old Testament to refer to what God did with his outstretched arm, with his mighty hand to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. It is an outcome. The outcome of humbling ourselves before God is that he will lift you up in due time. So because God is sovereign, we should bow to his wisdom, accept the twists and turns of his providence, and continue to entrust ourselves to him. There is a day coming, this future vindication being lifted up in due time, for those who have suffered, especially because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is here that we might be tempted to think that the command, cast all your anxiety on him, sort of comes out of the blue. It might be, it might be hard to see how that is linked to what comes right before it. But I think there is an important connection. And that is that Peter is not offering a new command here, but exactly how believers are to humble ourselves. We humble ourselves by casting all of our worries and our anxieties upon the one, the only one who is capable of doing something about it. By casting our anxiety on him. You know, when we were on vacation a few, few years ago, I watched some people uh, fishing off the coast of the Pacific. And as they did so, they, they cast their line as far as they possibly could into the ocean, off of the pier. I think that's a, a good and helpful analogy for us to think about the word casting here. It has certainly the idea of transferring one's concern, but also has the, the notion of propelling or throwing something as far as you possibly can. Not only do we give our concerns over completely to God, but we don't even leave them within reaching distance. I, I love that image. I guess that analogy kind of breaks down a little bit because there's a real, 
<laughs> you bring it back in. That is not, uh, that's not a part of, the, part of the analogy, I suppose, there. But you get the idea. This sort of casting, this propelling as far as you can, it's not like casting to a TV where you maintain control. No, it's jettisoning something as far as you can. Not only do we give our concerns completely to God, but we don't even leave them, as I said, within reaching distance. And notice the word that comes after that as well. All. We are to cast all our anxiety upon him. Every single worry, every single fear, everything. No matter what it is, how significant or insignificant it may seem, God is completely capable of handling anything we can throw at him. And the reason we should cast all our anxiety on him is because he cares for you. He cares for you. God is caring and intimately aware of every detail of our lives. God knows what we need before we even verbalize it, as Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6. And so, church, because God is gracious, sovereign, and caring, let us humble ourselves by casting our burdens upon him. God is gracious, sovereign, and caring. Humbling ourselves is not some sort of negative act of self-denial. No, instead is it a positive trust and dependence upon God for help. We are actually acting in a prideful way when we keep our anxieties and our worries to ourselves. And God wants us to humble ourselves by casting every single one of those worries and concerns upon him because he is gracious, because he is sovereign, he is caring, and he, he cares so deeply for us. We can do so through prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. No matter how significant or insignificant it might seem, each of us has brought certain worries and anxieties and fears with us even today, even as we are here gathered among one another. But God is asking us to relinquish control. Because God is gracious, sovereign, and caring, we should humble ourselves by casting our burdens onto him. But the reality is that even as we seek to do something like this, there is an enemy that wants to do nothing more than to devour us. There is an enemy that Peter talks about here and then addresses, calls us to stand firm to the very end. Stand firm, first of all, in the face of the accuser. Peter begins in verse 8 with, be alert and sober mind. This paints a picture of constant readiness for whatever may come our way. It reminds me of being, it reminds me of serving um, in the army and being a gunner, if you can believe it. They made somebody this tall. I'm glad it wasn't Jeff in a situation like this, but somebody this tall on top of a Humvee in a really, you know, silhouetted, Um, exposed, I guess, situation, but I served as a gunner, and it meant being alert to what was happening in my particular sector and being able to respond when a threat arose. And that's a lot of what this word alertness paints here in 1 Peter. We are not only to be alert, but of sober mind. And that is like we might call spiritual sobriety, being self-controlled, clear-minded, and free from out-of-control passions. And we are to be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. 
You know, Satan has other names of Scripture, from the father of lies to the accuser to um, what we see here, or also tempter, others as well. And each of those, I think, gives aspects as to who he is and, and the tactics that he uses. But here he prowls around like a roaring lion, a really vivid metaphor that I think Peter borrows from the Psalms, Psalm 22. If you picture a flock grazing peacefully on the side of a hill, what do you think a terrifying roar of a lion would do? It scatters that flock, leaves them in total panic. And when a lion is on the prowl, both the leaders, the shepherd, and the sheep need to be alert and watchful. But I think what really stands out to me from this passage is that Satan's goal is to devour. Satan's goal is to devour, especially our leaders. It doesn't say something like him wanting to distract us or to make us apathetic or to maim us. No, it is to devour. Devouring is a graphic depiction of Satan's strategy to destroy Christians in the church. He wants to tear apart marriages. He wants to embroil leaders in controversy. He wants people to turn their back on God. This is, this is sobering stuff. But God does not abandon us to fall prey to Satan's attacks. When faced with such an enemy, we are to resist him, standing firm in our faith. And if we are going to resist him, we, understand, we need to understand just how dangerous he is, but also to embrace how much more powerful our God is. 1 John 4, 4 says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Think back to the story of the fall. Adam and Eve were given the opportunity to be alert and to be of sober mind and to firmly resist the devil who, if we can phrase it the way, who slithered around like a venomous snake looking for someone to poison. But they were not watchful and did not resist and came to experience spiritual death as a result. And as believers, we have regained the power through Christ and Christ alone to take our stand against the prowling lion. And the reason we should do so is because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This part of our resistance comes from knowing that we are a part of a family, a worldwide family that is engaged in this same way. We are not scattered individuals. We are part of God's family, God's holy nation, as Peter refers to it. And this solidarity should encourage and strengthen us in the face of these challenges. So two takeaways for us to consider from, from these words. First, flee temptation. Resist Satan. Here in this passage, we're told to resist the devil. But sometimes we have a tendency to flip these two things. The Bible tells us in several places that the best way to overcome temptation is to flee from it, to get out of dodge, to completely run away from whatever, wherever it is that we are being tempted. To remove ourselves from those places. But when Satan comes at us, we are told to resist by standing firm in the faith. When we resist Satan, he actually flees from us. And yet sometimes we reverse this. We might say, resist, we try to say, resist temptation, but flee Satan. No, we are to resist Satan by relying on God's power, by putting on the whole armor of God, especially taking up the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, remembering the importance of prayer, as Ephesians 6 points to, 
And also remembering that in the wilderness, when Jesus himself was tempted, he recalled certain, certain passages of the Scripture. He took up his own sword of the Spirit to parry Satan's attacks. Stand firm in the face of Satan. And yes, stand firm in the face of suffering. Verses 10 and 11. Here in verse 10, Peter shifts the emphasis onto who God is, what God has done, and what God will continue to do. He is the God of all grace. He is the source of very grace, the grace that enables us to remain watchful and firm while we await the eternal glory that he has called us to. And as verse 10 reminds us, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. This a little while is Peter's way of saying that our earthly life and all the suffering that we encounter is really short compared to the eternal glory, the eternal life and glory that is coming in the future. And so the end of, the, the end of this passage really functions as a crescendo. I guess that's fitting to talk about here in a music hall like this, right? A crescendo of sorts. Highlighting the complete act of God. He provides the strength that we need now. And he will completely restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast to the very end. As a result of who God is and what he has done and what he will do, Peter says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, resist. Sorry, that's the wrong word. Rest. Rest, knowing that God provides the strength. Rest. Yes, this is a call to stand firm in the face of suffering. But what stands out in this passage is that God is the one that does the restoring and the strengthening. We can rest in his strength as he makes us firm and steadfast. Rest in his grace and all glory and honor belongs to God. You know, at the time Peter wrote, this must have seemed, it must have seemed to some that to Rome, to Rome belong the power forever and ever. But what happened to the Roman Empire? It withered and died. Many people today make the same error of thinking to the United States be the power forever and ever. But what will happen to the United States? Peter makes an important point earlier in the letter that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The eternal power of God makes Roman glory and American glory look like a withered flower. No other power can conquer or thwart God's sovereign purposes. So stand firm in the face of Satan, in the face of suffering, and in the grace of God. Stand firm in the grace of God. Verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. This Silas, or Silvanus, as some translations have, was most likely the person that was helping him to write this down. And I love, maybe you can uh, identify with this, I love when a pastor says something like, I have written to you briefly. <laughs> it's kind of like saying one last thing, or I just have a short message to give. Encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He meant this as an encouragement in the midst of brokenness. This is really the reason Peter wrote this letter in the first place, encouraging the church and testifying that this is the true grace of God and calling us as a church to stand fast in it. 
He shares how the hope that we can have in the midst of hurting, this hurting and broken world is all because of God's gift of grace. Rather than being devoured by the devil, we are encouraged to stand fast in the grace of God. So church, stand firm in the face of Satan and suffering and stand firm in the grace of God. Verse 13 says, She who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends her greetings. And so does my son Mark. This was most likely a reference to the church in Rome, where Peter was at the time. And John Mark was a faithful brother and companion, and also the one that wrote the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, which will be where we will be turning to next, starting next week. Greet one another with the kiss of love. It takes a little bit of modifying, I guess, in an age of COVID. Uh, greet one another with the kiss of love. I'm sure my kids would love to do that to all of you. But uh, Peter wanted the community to greet one another, to show affection toward one another as the flock of God. And yes, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Jesus came to bring hope and peace in the midst of a hurting and broken world. And perhaps you are here today experiencing your own chaos in life, experiencing your own, your own challenges. Everything might seem tumultuous and you don't know where to turn. Jesus came to bring peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, he said. Not as the world gives do I give. We can have peace with God and peace with one another because of what God did in sending his son to radically reunite us to the Father. And so, church, we need, we desperately need humble leaders who will shepherd God's flock under the guidance of the chief shepherd. Because God is gracious and sovereign and caring, we should humble ourselves by casting every worry and fear upon the only one that is capable of doing something about it. And may we stand firm, not only in the face of Satan and suffering, but may we stand firm in the grace of God. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this book. We praise you for First Peter, this letter that Peter has given us to encourage us to stand firm in your grace. We pray, God, that you would go with us and before us and alongside us. Father, would you raise up godly leaders? We thank you for the leaders that you have given us even within our own church. But would you raise up even more, God, who would desire to love you, to serve you, and to shepherd the flock that you have entrusted to their care with love, with grace, knowing and looking to you, the chief shepherd. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you, thank you for the example of humility that you've given us. And would you cause us to wrap our own towels around our waist, to love and serve those in humility around us, not only those within the broader community, but especially those within the, church, the family of God as well. And Lord Jesus, we ask for your grace and strength to stand firm, to resist, to resist Satan. Would you find us faithful until you come again. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. 
To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.